0: I want to give you an opportunity again, if anybody's had an experience, a contact, an opportunity to chit-chat with or defend their faith or engage in debate or dialogue with a member of an alternative worldview to share that. So anybody have any good stories for us? Michael. okay great, yeah well that yeah well that, that raises a, that raises a good point, right? instead of starting with theology or religion or God, you start with a life experience that you may hold in common with someone and you move out from there, so that could be exposure to or part of a broken marriage, uh, an illness, um, maybe loss of a job, uh, a move. A difficult child. You got to be careful on this one. A difficult spouse. That's that's your story. That's another. Actually, that's 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 where Wendy generally starts. Yeah. And. Wendy's got a very broad and expansive ministry to a lot of women <laughs> in Windsor. <laughs> uh, Joy? One of my Muslim families that I tutor, their kids, um, she was upset about some things being taught at school that mm. differ from their religion. Mm. So I basically like, said, <coughs> welcome to our world. But yeah. as a Christian, we just led to a dialogue of some things that got a little farther than we've gotten before. Okay, but good. But focusing maybe on the commonalities, yeah, okay, very good. I think that's uh maybe something to think about at times as well is that we we tend and you know it's it's not a bad thing, but we do tend to debate and talk about the differences, but we because we are concerned about those issues, but we can also start with commonalities and then work our way out from there and Just as an example in my world, I find Catholic people uh, maybe not easy, but easier to talk with because there's there are in fact so many commonalities. There's some pretty significant differences too, but uh, there's there's so much that we already agree on. So you're already if you use sort of a track illustration, you're already over like ten hurdles. There's just a few more to go. And uh, so that's something to take into consideration too. Think about what are some commonalities, common experiences, common beliefs, and how can maybe that lead to, how can that be a conversation starter? Susie? Good, excellent. It's always great when people ask the questions you want them to ask. Like, so how do I get to heaven? Yeah. <laughs> or tell me about Jesus. Really? Okay, I'll tell you. Sometimes we think we got to create the opportunities for the question, and sometimes we do. But other times the question just asked. and it's like this is too good to be true. Um, uh, I wasn't expecting you to ask. <laughs> so, anyone else? Okay, Jill. Oh, yeah. And so I asked her if she's actually praying or just talking herself. And she said, No, I pray and I pray all day. And so I said, Well, I hope you
1: pray for our dinners too. Julie and I had to pray for well. Oh. <laughs> and then we got talking, and she said, Have you ever read the Bible? The whole Bible. I said, Oh, yeah. She said, so The whole Bible. And she said, Well, I don't ever get any of the Je- uh, Jeopardy questions, but so it's the Bible category. Oh. So Yeah. She had no idea. And I said, I don't
0: think your priest would be very happy if you read it, so don't tell him. <laughs> 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 I, said, That's not true. I said, I'm pretty sure they don't encourage it. She's said, you know what? You're right. We don't ever have he never talks about that. Uh, uh, we're gonna get her I'm gonna get her the message. Yeah. That would be a better but she wants yeah.
1: to do it
0: so she'll, she'll be able to use the Jeffrey one. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys ever seen that Bible? I've just seen it very briefly, that Bible game show. There's actually teams. I don't know what it's called. I think it's an American thing. But there's, what is it? The Game Show Network? Okay. There's like teams of three or whatever, and they have like a spiritual name. I don't know. Like the Bible Thumpers versus the Bible Chicks or something. Like there's like guys and girls and stuff like that. Oh okay. Yeah. Kinda of interesting. Yeah. Okay, very good. Well, I'm glad there's lots of lots of things to talk about and that you're you're having these kind of conversations. So we're talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses. That's where we left off last week. And um I think you know, many of us have had encounters with Jehovah's Witness people and I wanted to start off with just some questions. I find that that when I'm talking to Muslims, to Jehovah's Witnesses, to Mormons, that the questions are common questions. And these are just three. And I'm wondering if you've ever thought through why these tend to be the stumbling blocks. There may be others. But these tend to be the stumbling blocks to jehovah's witnesses in particular muslims mormons why do so many other faiths struggle with the trinity the deity of christ and this is justification by faith alone why do you think have you ever thought about that why why are these so difficult for people who share some of our beliefs but differ on other aspects to overcome or to believe in why why these Okay so there's just a difference. Yeah. It is dis- it is distinct. This is a- this one you're talking about, right? That's a distinct belief if you compare it to other world religions. Yeah, that's a good point. I th- TJ, I think you might be onto to something. If you think about these three doctrines and their implications, they're more than just what we believe to be good theology or stuff that is unique or different. They are... These are doctrines that impact so many things. The nature of God, the prospect of having a Savior who can substitute himself for us, the means of attaining eternal life, these are kind of important matters, I think. And I think you're onto something that we shouldn't downplay the supernatural, the demonic angle here. That Not that we want to spend a whole lot of time thinking this way, but if you were the devil and you had the opportunity to sort of throw a monkey wrench into the Christian faith, What are you going to pick on? You might employ a lot of different strategies. But if you can sort of strip Christianity of its fundamentals, rob it of its foundation, the whole thing comes down like a house of cards. So if you don't have a Savior that's divine, what's he doing on the cross? Just being a great moral example of self-sacrifice? If you don't have a Savior who can justify people by faith, then you're back into works, which doesn't really make us that much different than anybody else. And if you don't have a God who's intrinsically relational, then how does that God have a relationship with you and me? So I think there is a spiritual dimension to this, and that's why it shouldn't surprise us that many of the world religions that share elements of Christian theism, like Islam, like Mormonism, like Jehovah's Witnesses, will attack these three. So here's what I want to suggest to you. When you're in the process of having a conversation with the Jehovah's Witness, for instance, don't just defend the doctrine. Understand the reason for the doctrine, the necessity of the doctrine, the implications of the doctrine. How does this stuff matter? In my mind, <clears throat> a good student of the Bible understands scripture, but let's say someone understands 100% of scripture, and someone understands 50% of scripture. But the person who understands 50% of scripture understands how that 50% works and applies to life, I think that person's a far more effective student of the Bible, and is going to be a far more be- far more effective apologist than the person that just has their head stuffed with content. So as, as you read your Bible, as you defend your faith, don't just get hung up on, we got to be right because we're right, which we are. Don't just get hung up on that, but also think about what differences it make and pursue that question to its logical and biblical conclusions. And in that way, when you're talking to someone, you can illustrate to them the reason why we believe what we believe. And I think this is sort of in keeping with 1 Peter 3.15, where it says, always be prepared to give a defense, which is, by the way, the word apologia, from which we get apologetics. Always be prepared to give a defense or a reason for the hope that you have. And then, of course, the angle is, but do so with gentleness and respect. So notice it's the reason and the hope. So there's a cerebral intellectual content angle, but there's also a hope. Well, I think that implies then, and of course the rest of Scripture would teach this, that what we believe has to trickle into our heads and, and into our hearts and affect our hope. So when I think about the doctrines of the the Trinity, the deity of Christ, or justification by grace through faith alone, I know why they're important. And that's going to affect the way that I preach them and the way that I share them and articulate them and defend them with members of alternative worldviews. So just kind of keep that in mind. So we're talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses again. By the way, I just want to put another plug in for this. This is a great manual. It's called Charts of Cult, Sex, and Religious Movements. Mine's got a big coffee stain in the front. H. Wayne House. It's a Zondervan publication. And the neat thing about this book is it's in it's in chart form. <clears throat> so you don't have to read like chapter after dry chapter. And and what it does is it, it sort of highlights like a number of uh, uh, cults and world. Re- this is a, yeah, so this one's just... Pretty much just cults. There's another one he has that gets into Islam and Roman Catholicism stuff, but this deals with cults. So there's some that you're probably probably not going to encounter. Christadelphians, they're around, but they're rare. I think it's if you're driving up the Number Eleven Highway way up near Huntsville, there's a isn't there a Christadelphian church on the left-hand side of the road? There is, Joy. I I think that's the only one I've ever seen, but there's a small group. And there's, there's others like uh, the Family Children of God, the Alamo Christian Ministries. I've never even met people from most of these cults. But then the biggies are the ones that I've highlighted, at least most of them. And one of them is, is the Jehovah's Witnesses. So it's all in chart form. It kind of lays things out, and uh, it's kind of important stuff. Now, um, just back to the notes for a few minutes, and then we'll get back into this. I've I've noted we talked a little bit about the New World Translation last week, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. And I gave you the example from John one one, where the Jehovah's Witnesses have chosen to disregard rules that apply to the Greek language in order to promote a certain doctrinal angle on the deity of, lack of deity of Christ. And just for information sake i wanted to actually introduce you to a list of six names and these are the six names these are the six fellows that had a role in the translation i'm going to put that in quotes of the new world translation and from a purely academic perspective from a purely scholastic perspective they don't they are not qualified to be translating from Koine Greek into English and so you have their names there Franz Frederick he he's probably the only person to actually translate we're just assuming this cuz he's the only guy that has any training at all in Greek he was a liberal arts student at the University of Cincinnati he had 21 semester hours of classical Greek now i am not a greek scholar by any stretch but I have some basic competencies in Greek, and I think I have about 29 credit hours in Greek. And I wouldn't feel comfortable sitting down and coming up with my own translation of the Bible. And I have training in Koine Greek, which is actually the Greek of the New Testament. This guy has training in a Greek that came before, a form of Greek that came before the, the Koine Greek of the of the world of Christ. And he partially completed a two- Two hour survey course in Biblical Greek in his junior year, which, uh, in Bible colleges and seminaries, a full semester course is three hours, and that's just getting you started. And then he was self taught in Spanish, Biblical, Hebrew, and Aramaic. So he, he probably had some linguistic abilities, but the point being is that I would be pretty confident to say that no translator has ever been allowed on any major translation of the Bible with that pitiful of a resume. And in addition to that, uh, this might be a helpful point for you, that all the major translations that are translated in our world today are done by committee, meaning there are multiple personalities involved, cross-referencing, cross-checking. It's not just they grab one guy and say, come up with the ESV or come up with the NIV or that's not how it works. I mean, this is a serious uh, scholastic task. And then we have a guy by the name of George Gag- uh, Ganges, no training in biblical language. He was a Turkish national who knew modern Greek. Well, that means he basically knows the alphabet because the alphabet hasn't changed. And there would be a few grammatical similarities, probably a little bit of vocabulary, but... 101 changes think about how much english has changed since the king james version of 1611 which we don't even have by the way we have a uh, the king james today is i think something like from 18 something it's been upgraded but think about how english has changed in a couple hundred years well this is like 2000 years 1900 years removed from biblical greek so you can imagine how much it's changed and then we have three Four more people who had no training in biblical languages, one guy uh, majored in mechanical engineering for three years before dropping out. so the point is is that uh, you're on you're on kind of slippery ground if you're trying to promote a translation of the Bible frankly a translation of any sort from one language to the next if you don't have the academic credentials or especially when you're translating from a dead language into a into a living language. So it's not like, okay, you you two speak Spanish. It's your first language. You're translating into English. It's not the same. We're talking about translating from a dead language that's 2,000 years old into a modern language. You've got to have some competencies and capabilities beyond this. So here's just some some examples of uh, situations in the... um, uh, Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. Jim's pointing out that deity of Christ is spelt wrong on the board. Thank you. Noted. <laughs> so, I wonder what my ringer's going off for. Um, so here are some examples of erroneous translation examples. Technology, eh? Uh, Genesis 1, 1 to 2. So the New World Translation says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth proved to be formless and waste, and there was darkness upon the surface of the watery deep. And God's active force, I've underlined the critical issue, God's active force was moving to and fro over the surface of the waters. Now compare that to the NASB, the New American Standard, published in and around, what, like 1911 or something. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface. The, the spirit of God was uh, moving over the surfaces of the surface of the waters. Why the difference? Yeah, it's it's more of a downplaying of God's person. So, in in the New Test or the Old Testament Hebrew, we would have. Spirit of God, and um, that would be probably some. I don't have a Hebrew Bible with me, but I the, one of the words for uh, spirit in Hebrew is ruach, the equivalent of r u a h. Jim, not r a u h, and um, and then Elohim, which is the generic word for God. It's pretty hard to get active force out of that without forcing it upon the translation. So here we have a clear example of a translation that's driven by a desire to justify one's theology that violates the meanings of the word. Then we have Zechariah 12.10, and I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit and favor of the spirit of favor and entreaties, and, and they will certainly look to the one whom they pierced through, and they will certainly wail over him as in the wailing over an only son, and there shall be a bitter lament over him as when there is bitter lament over the firstborn son. So then in the NASB, which would be quite a wooden literal translation, more equivalent to the translation style of the King James Version or the ESV, a, a very tight translation. Uh, It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as he mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Why the change? First of all, we would understand this Zechariah passage to be what kind of a passage? Prophetic, prophetic of what? Okay, it's a messianic passage. So, a messianic passage is a passage that either points to the Messiah in, uh, for lack of a better term, in some vague way, or in some specific way, or in a way that is that is interpreted by later biblical writers as pointing to the Messiah. So, and by the way, not that we're in a course here in biblical prophecy, but Prophetic books are often have layered meanings, so there's an immediate meaning, and then there's a fuller meaning, which the biblical scriptures help us to understand down the road. So therefore, some of them are more obvious than others. But here we have basically God speaking, and he says, look on me. And then he's referencing one who will be pierced. But the problem would be is that that would imply that the one who is going to be pierced is who? God. So then if if you want to get around that, one would say, well, look to the one. Because they wouldn't deny the fact that Jesus was pierced. But they don't want to tie him up with God. They want to keep him separate. So the translation, then again, is theologically driven. Sammy, do you have your hand up? Or Okay. And then Matthew uh, fourteen thirteen. that should be two T's, by the way, Jim. Um, it says, <laughs> then those in the boat did, and I don't even use this word, but obeisance to him, saying, you are really God's son. And then the NASB said they, they worshipped him. Why? why? Why choose a more obscure, more vague word that you and I probably have never used Yeah, you you worship God and God alone. So here we have, what's the context? We would have Jesus being declared to be God's son, but the text actually says that in the process of proclaiming that, this was an act of worship, or they were worshiping him in the process of making the proclamation. This is troublesome to someone who says, Jesus isn't like God, God. And then we went over John 1 last week. So I won't hit on that one again. John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, Most truly I say to you, before Abraham came into existence, I have been. Whereas in the NASB it says, I am. Now, I don't know if we talked about this last week, but Greek is pretty specific about tenses. And that word is, is actually one word. It's a me. That's in the present tense. So you sort of have to make it something other than that in order to, again, justify the idea. So that Jesus isn't God. Why? Because what what does I am bring to mind? God's descriptions of himself in the Hebrew scriptures as the ever-existent one. And I, I kind of like to think about this. Like if... Why why does God, have you ever thought about why God describes himself as the I am? It's almost like an incomplete phrase or an incomplete idea. So, why does God then define himself as the I am? You ever thought about that? What does that mean? Tell us. (laughs) Well, I want to get you thinking about this a little bit first. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, he can say, I am love or I am merciful, but he doesn't need to. So it's interesting that you think about this. Everything else needs some adjective or description attached to them to hem in and define who they are. But God can just say, I am. I just am. I don't need to be defined by comparison or contrast. Now, he does define himself, of course, as loving and gracious and merciful, but he can also just say, I am. And you're like, well, I am what? I just am. So there's a sense in which I think there's an idea here that he doesn't need to tie himself into anyone else or compare himself to anyone else. But the second dimension of this is this idea of, of eternal eternality. He just exists. In the present tense, all the time. He just is. So we tend to define ourselves in light of time, right? I was this, I am this, I will be this. But God can just say, I, I am. I, I am the eternally existent one, is kind of the implication of it. Did you have something you wanted to add to that, Joe?
2: Mm hmm.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good. Read. Mm Hmm. Yeah. Which, if you think about it, from like a logical perspective, a being for a being to exist forever, they sort of logically, at least logically, and the Bible does declare this as well, or at least imply this. For a being to exist forever, that being has to be without change because change implies a number of things. It can imply a potential deficit, so you gotta change to overcome the deficit. Or if you change, you could potentially be changing away from that which is absolutely perfect. And then thirdly, that which is pure and perfect and absolutely everything that it needs to be doesn't need to change there's no need for change we need to change because we're not what we should be or who we should be but a God who is perfect who is all that God needs to be one could say who is without blemish he doesn't need to change he doesn't need to progress he doesn't need to be a dynamic being he can be a static being he can always be the same and that not only in a sense guards him from fallibility, but it also highlights the fact that he's perfect. Period. And that's just the way it is. So there's some there's some interesting ideas that flow out of these doctrines. And then we have Acts twenty, twenty eight. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit is appointed to you overseers. Notice the small h, small s on the Holy Spirit. To you overseers, to shepherd to shepherd the congregation of God, which he purchased with the blood of his own son. Then it says, so God, which he purchased with the blood of his own son. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. So there's a tying in here of his own blood to God. So this, the passage is not saying that it's the Father who shed his blood. It's not a violation of the distinctiveness of the persons, but it's just one instance where it's tying Jesus in tight with God. But because there's a discomfort with that in the Jehovah's Witnesses, there's a need to separate it out and, and add some slight changes to the wording in order to make that happen. By the way, uh, in, in deference to the translators, it, it is true that in Greek, like the Holy Spirit is not capitalized. So... Um, last week when I was writing on the board like Greek words. So this would be the word for uh this would be the word for Holy Spirit, okay? Uh Hagios, this is like H A G I O S. And spirit would be pneuma. Okay? This remember Rob Bell had his Numa videos. This is where he took it from. So this is all lowercase. This is all lowercase. Now we could change these two letters to uppercase to make them uh, refer to the Holy Spirit, but in the the Greek, the original Greek of the New Testament, there they didn't generally use lowercase. It's all caps. Everything's caps. My grandma always writes me letters in caps, and it's kind of like that. Everything's capped, straight through. She's from England. I don't know if it's an English thing or not. So the point being is that the text itself wouldn't really tell you whether this is supposed to be capitalized or not. You have to make an interpretive decision based on the context. So what you would do then is you would look at other instances. Well, the, the bottom line is, is that because Hagios Numa, Holy Spirit, is tied to... Uh, the idea of a personality. He has descriptions given of him. He's holy and all that kind of stuff. That um, we believe him to be the whole, the, a, a being, a personal being, because of the descriptions that are given of him. Whereas in the um, Jehovah's Witness Church, they would simply deny the fact that the Holy Spirit is a personality. So at all points in time when Hagias Numa, or... Sometimes this elongated Hagios Pneumatos shows up. They just throw in the small H and the small S because they just don't believe he's a personality. He's like the active force of God, right? Yeah? Okay, so a rough analogy would be if someone was smoking here in the front row, it would be easier to illustrate because there would be smoke coming up. We didn't allow that. This is a Baptist church, not a CRC church, and um, so, at the risk of seeming blasphemous, let's say I'm God, okay, and I wave my hand, and you could see, let's say, you could see the air, and I move the air, like you'd see the smoke, kind of whatever, be displaced or move around. That's their understanding of the Holy Spirit. So, as God moves and works the 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 force that emanates from his movements is the holy spirit so he's not a person he's not a being he's the force that em that emanates from the movements of god yeah
3: Holy Spirit. Oh. He preached a lot about the Holy Spirit. Okay. And he said, more than ask a, a God for anything, we should understand and pray to God to give us, believe to God, to give, to give us His Holy Spirit. And then, then, then when God will give us his Holy Spirit, we will then born again and we'll
0: understand what God, what story is, what God wants about us. Hmm. I was very impressed when I thought that. Yeah, having not read your source, um, I'm wondering if there may have been some subtle nuances in there that qualified some of that because... First of all, one cannot pray for the Holy Spirit, receive the Holy Spirit, and then be saved. One can pray a prayer of faith, but really it's not the prayer that does anything, it's the faith. And God can save that person, and then that person will receive the Holy Spirit. So there's no instance in the New Testament where an unbeliever prays for the Holy Spirit, receives the Holy Spirit, and then is saved. The Holy Spirit is the, this is bad language, but the conversion tool that God uses to regenerate the unregenerate. And the Holy Spirit then enters into us, and he's God's down payment, security for our eternal life. He's the presence of God within us, and we do get him. And by the way, in distinction from charismatics, I believe that we get the fullness of the Spirit at the moment of conversion. The full presence of the Spirit resides in us at the moment of our conversion. This is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So Paul in 1 Corinthians said, for we were all once baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's talking to the whole church. At Pentecost, we have instances where people were believers and had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's, in a sense, moving around because now the Holy Spirit is sort of out and about indwelling people. So there are believers that are not yet indwelt. But after Acts, the paradigm seems to be that one receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of one's conversion. And then we talk about the fullness of the Spirit. So the fullness of the Spirit is something that, frankly, comes and goes depending on the degree to which we are... Um, allowing God to take up full residence and lordship in our lives. So I know the Holy Spirit's a spirit, but if we think of it spatially, the Holy Spirit's in us regardless. But, you know, there may be times when we're only filled up with Him to hear, and other times to hear, and other times to our kneecaps, in the sense that if we're not living our lives in submission to the Holy Spirit of God, that we are less filled with him. It doesn't mean that he's somehow been divided up and part of him has left and only a quarter of him or a tenth of him is behind. But there's a sense in which the fullness of the Spirit is on one hand once and for all, But there's when it comes to the salvation experience, but there's also a sense in which the fullness of the Spirit, when it's tied to sanctification of the doctrine of spiritual growth, goes up and down depending on the degree to which you've surrendered to him. Now, in contrast to that, there are some that would teach that one needs to pray subsequent to their salvation for a second baptism or a second installment of the Holy Spirit. I don't see that in Scripture. I see it in Acts. Of course, I see it in Acts. But that's because these people didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, because Pentecost hadn't yet happened. I don't see it outside of Acts. So you're reading Acts. It's a description of life in the early church it's not a prescription for how things work through all of time so yeah yes Dela? No, it's not. God does the justifying, 100%. It's monergistic. It's all of God. Sanctification is synergistic. It's you and God. So my salvation, meaning my justification, was entirely gifted to me by God. My sanctification is me and God working in tandem. So I'm being convicted. I'm being taught. I'm being encouraged. I'm getting a slap upside the back of the head. I'm getting a hug from God, depending on what I need. And then I'm in a position to respond to that. Am I going to say, "Forget you, I'm doing my own thing today," or I'm going to respond to your encouragement, or I'm going to respond to your rebuke? So it almost sounds at first blush to be um, not evangelical to say that, but in fact, historically, that's what evangelicals have taught: that justification is all of God, but the process of sanctification, which is growth in Christ likeness, is it's God and and us in partnership, specifically the Holy Spirit of God. So it's, it's kind of like um, Trevor's your husband, he's your spiritual head. One day, you may actually be letting him be your spiritual head completely. Another day, you might be saying, I don't want him as my spiritual head. Well, it doesn't mean he's not. Positionally, he still is. He's still in the house, he's still there, he's still your spiritual head. But you may or may not be allowing him to function that way. So the Holy Spirit of God is once for all. He doesn't come and go. He takes up full residency in our lives, but there's a sense in which sometimes he's our boss with a capital B, and sometimes we've reduced him to a small b and said, you know, I I don't really want you to take control of my life today. And we call that sin, rebellion, that kind of thing. So I believe if we want to call baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's what takes place at the moment of conversion. That's not a subsequent post-Christian experience that takes place when we pray pray some dramatic prayer or have a dramatic experience. It's just not attested to in Scripture. okay. So now we have Colossians 1, 16 to 17, because by means of him all other things were created in heaven, heavens and upon the earth, and things visible and things invisible, no matter whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things, and by means of all other things uh, were made to exist. So obviously we have a lot of others there. And the Nazbe simply says, For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or th- rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What's the difference? What's the difference? We, we, we see the difference in, in words, but what's the difference? Okay. So look at the first part of look at the first part of the NASB. For by him, all things were created. Now, was the Son of God created? No. I mean, obviously, we know that his human body was created, but. The Son of God, the person, was not created. So we believe, as has already been mentioned, in the eternality of God, and that includes the eternality of the Son. He's always existed. Do the JWs believe that? No. So to say all other things lumps him in with the things that were created, right? Does that make sense to you? So it's in a sense, it's an attempt to bring him into the created order. So he's somehow involved in it, but he's also just one of the boys, so to speak. Instead of the, the, the Bible, which attests to the fact that he's eternal and he's God's agent of creation. By the way, the Son of God is the agent of creation, <clears throat> even at the beginning of time. John tells us this. Genesis is based upon... Genesis, The word of God, it's the, the word of God, what we would call the divine Logos, the pre-incarnate son who's speaking the world into existence. God spoke and there's a son. Spoke and there's fish. This is the second person, the triunity of God, doing what he does. He creates. And then we have Titus 2.13. While we wait for the happy hope and glorious manifestation of the great God and of the Savior of us, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. And then Nasby, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So again, there's an attempt here to do what? Separate Christ from any reference to God, worship, divinity, and to lump him in with creation, that which is finite, limited in some way, shape, or form. So I wanted to share those examples with you because they, they do sort of you know, bring, bring to light the, the, the clear attempts in this translation to support, kind of put a buttress up against the doctrines of the, the Watchtower Society instead of allowing the doctrines of Scripture to affect and leak out into the church and affect the doctrines of the church. This is why it's a cult. A spurious faith. So, a little bit more on Jehovah's Witness teaching. Uh, they, here are their allegations against us. The Trinity is not a true doctrine. Uh, Trinitarians believe in three gods. I told you last week that gets me a little upset. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity was borrowed from ancient paganism, Satan originated the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus Christ, before becoming a man, was Michael the Archangel, the first and greatest creation of Jehovah God. So here is the source material for that. Uh, Christ was first of God's creation. This is from Jehovah's Witnesses in the 20th century, 1979. Uh, He, the Word, was created before all the other sons of God, small case sons of God, and meaning the angels, and that he is the only one who was directly created by God. So the idea is God, God creates this mega angel. And then I guess he would create the other angels. The son of God was known as Michael before he came to earth. So those are um, statements out of the Watchtower uh, Society. And then we have the idea that Jesus was a spokesman for God before his birth. It says that um, he served in heaven as one who spoke for God. That's in a publication called You Can Live Forever in Paradise on Earth, 1982, not that long ago. They believe that while on earth Jesus was not God, only a perfect man. So kind of a kind of like a um like an an example of morality rather than a savior. So if you want to know what it means to be fully human, live like Jesus, but he's not going to save you from anything. After Jesus died, he was resurrected with his original identity as Michael the archangel restored. So he's Michael before his incarnation. He's back to Michael afterwards. So it says in in that same publication I mentioned, Read carefully the following Bible account. War broke out out in heaven. Michael, who was the resurrected Jesus Christ, and his angels battled with the dragon. Now, interestingly, Michael, on his own authority, was unable to rebuke Satan in Jude 9. Uh, Yet in Mark 9.25, Jesus himself, while in a lower state as man rebuke Satan. So what does that say? Jesus is something more than an angel. Uh, Hebrews 2.5 says an angel can't rule the world. And yet in Luke 1, to 33 in Revelation 19.16, it, it portrays Christ as the one who will reign supreme. Thus, Jesus and Michael can't be the same being. Says Jesus is. They would say Jesus is not the Almighty God. Jesus is a god in the sense that he's lesser than Jehovah, Jehovah God. So that's kind of an interesting thing to say because, um, you know, they'd be quite opposed to polytheism. But in some ways, they're sort of giving a tip of the hat to polytheism by saying, well, there's sort of a great god and, you know, maybe a lesser god as well. Uh, A couple more things about the the nature of Christ. Uh, Jesus was equal with the perfect Adam. Jesus did not become the Christ until he was baptized. Jesus was not immortal before he was resurrected. So even Jesus as the Messiah, that was sort of like something that was given to him at his baptism, but not prior to that. Now it's true that the, the installation or the manifestation of Christ as the Messiah or the anointed one did happen at his baptism. So that's kind of when he put the flag on the pole and hiked it up the pole for everyone to see. But it's not like somehow he became something he wasn't previously. He was declaring it through his baptism and subsequent ministry. Um, Holy Spirit's God's active force, not a personal being. Through this force, God accomplishes his purposes. So we've already sort of commented on that. Um, A lot of other stuff we could talk about. Jesus' death paid for Adam's sin only, not for the sins of all humanity. So that's kind of an interesting thing. So here's some quotations. Uh, He, God, could not set aside the judgment that he had entered against Adam. He could, however, be consistent by permitting another to pay the debt of Adam and thereby to open the way for Adam and his offspring to be released from sin and death. Or further down, to redeem or ransom man from the grave means that God will provide a means of satisfaction of judgment against Adam. And yet we know from the scriptures that Jesus is dying for the sins of the world. Right? Well, fundamentally, salvation is tied to one's association with the Watchtower Society, which would mean that you would have to affirm correct belief and perform meritorious acts in keeping with the Watchtower Society, door-to-door visitation? Mm, I don't think so. Did I ever tell you I went to Jehovah's Witness Service? Did I ever tell you I slept in the Kingdom Hall? So, What was that? No, not during the service. (laughs) Okay, let me tell the story. So... I go to Bible college. My first year after Bible college, I needed a summer job. I start calling through the Yellow Pages. Uh, Ridsdale Services and Kamoka hires me. I show up. I think I got the job because he found out I was a Bible college student. He was an elder in the Kingdom Hall, probably looking for someone to debate. So we used to refinish concrete around pools and stuff. And I was living in London at the time, and we had to do a job in Windsor for a week. So we come down to Windsor. And uh, the whole week I worked with three Kingdom Hall elders. And we were, I didn't even know Windsor at the time, so I do not even know where we were. The only thing I remember about Windsor is being in a restaurant with these really cool pine tables, which you know to be the lumberjack, right? That's all I remember. But we were out in the county someplace refinishing a pool around a deck, and they uh, it was kind of an interesting experience because literally... I'm like 19 years old, and these guys—I don't know—they looked like they were 80. They were probably like 35. <laughs> and these three guys are sitting there every night, like debating me, right? And it was a lot of fun. I just pretended to know more than I actually did. And uh, so we'd have we'd have these debates back and forth, and. I actually had brought along some material. I I brought along some copies of the Watchtower that I found in a a publication by a guy named Bill Sentner that was an ex-Watchtower guy. And literally, it's photocopies of the Watchtower compared and contrasted to show all their lies and discrepancies. And they wouldn't read them. I'm like, this is your Watchtower. They wouldn't even look at it. I said, this is your stuff. They said, yeah, but it's compiled by an apostate. We're not allowed to read it. Well, that's convenient. Like, these are photocopies of your stuff. They won't read it because it's compiled by an apostate. So anyway, they invited me to come to the Kingdom Hall, and it was an interesting experience. Um, I, I don't know or remember. There might have been 80 or 100 people there. And what they do in the service is they practice debates. So <coughs> for the guys, the guy, if I remember correctly, would get up and he would debate the congregation or at least share his faith like in practice form with us. And then for women, they'd set up two tables at the front, and they would debate each other in front of the congregation because they weren't allowed to address the men. And uh, then after that, I slept in the library of the Kingdom Hall by myself. So I had my sleeping bag. I'm like (laughs) surrounded by heresy all night. And it was an interesting experience. I mean, who who else do you know that can say they slept in the library of the Kingdom Hall? Right. Well, I did. So anyway, you had an experience you wanted to share? Yeah, I just wanted to mention that I I studied with them for one year. Mm. When I came uh, from
3: Texas, <coughs> yeah. I, uh, I became Christian in Mexico, but I didn't start like really studying, Christian, reading my Bible regularly. Yeah. guys mm-hmm. just knocked on my door and they speak Spanish and they were very kind. We were friends and uh, yeah. this couple and, and they invited me to learn. and I thought, you know what? <laughs> I thought, I wanted to learn with you for one year mm-hmm. because I don't know, I am not sure. Like, I don't want to be like a Catholic. Yeah. Like, I know nothing much about Christianity. Right. And you guys are coming and I'm looking for God, really. Yeah. Really they said well we are we are the and they what? okay so every week they went to go twice a week pick me up on Sundays and go over there and uh, I just feel kind of strange and mm. kind of weird and they're very kind but mm. I don't only one year if I like it if I'm sure that it is I'll say if I don't hmm. totally just one year wow. and I did it I yeah. did it in one year and I went in
0: then I met Sam, and then and we just Sam wanted to do a Bible study with you too and with Was that like evangelistic dating, Sam, actually, Sam, or <laughs> a strategy? I actually saved this poor woman for a while. She
1: won't give me the credit of <laughs> my
0: When you were in it, was there the debates too? Do you remember? You were the guy sleeping in the service. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know why. Yeah. His eyes weren't at the front. Oh, that's great. She's
2: (laughs) stronger than me. I went just two times. I couldn't anymore.
0: Did you go in Venezuela or here?
2: In Montreal.
0: Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Is it true, I think I've heard this, but is it true that the Jehovah's Witnesses do tend to target immigrants? Yeah, they're vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Body, so like- yeah, and the language barrier you might not be able to pick up on the subtle differences even if in your situation you've been exposed to biblical Christianity but if we're talking about God as essence and person you know because of undeveloped language skills that might be kind of confusing as well right Oh, okay. And I was
3: learning from them, Mm -hmm. learning, and I was—I had congress of tapes that I used to tape the programs and reread. And I, some used to work from eight o'clock to three or four or five o'clock, so the whole day was by myself. Okay. And I hear and I hear and I hear and I hear hear, and I hear the radio and I pay attention to a lot, a lot of things, doing my things while listening.
0: Yeah. my dictionary find out. And I call uh folks in the family and I told them in my half Spongish <Yeah>. Well, this, this this brings up a good point, and I, I know you've heard this and you believe this, but I just want to remind you of it, is that we all need to study our Bibles, because I could be the biggest liar you ever met, and you just don't know until you compare what I say to Scripture. I'm talking about content. Obviously, illustrations and application and principles and stuff are different, but when it comes to Bible content and the proclamation of the Word of God, uh, you know, we do need to... I'm not saying we go into church when everyone preaches, we're like all weirded out, wondering, like, is this person leading us down the garden path? But there is a sense in which we have to be, without being critical, critical thinkers. Listen to what we're saying, compare that to the Word of God. And challenge or encourage... uh, me and others, if we're off track, to get back on track, right? So this is a this is a good reminder. It's not just that we pull out our Bibles and we're with Jehovah's Witnesses. We should kind of have our Bibles out a little more often than that, even in our own churches. Yeah, yeah. So what what is uh, what is uh, Christ doing? Someone asked. I think someone asked about. Jill, you asked about salvation. By clearing away the penalty of Adam's sin. So we believe in original sin, right? That Adam did something to the human race. It wasn't like his sin was original. It was that it was the original sin. And now we call it original sin, which corrupts us all. He's our federal head, our seminal head, meaning that we're tied to him as our representative. We're tied to him genetically as human beings. And he plunged all of us into sin as a result of his sin. So all of us have a sin problem, and we believe that through the second Adam, Christ, that sin problem can be resolved. In the Kingdom Hall, they would teach that by clearing away the penalty of Adam's sin, Christ opens the way, in brackets, gives the opportunity to work for salvation, So a couple quotes, Watchtower, August 72, it is for the reward of eternal life that every last person on earth should now be working, are you? To get one's name written in the book of life will depend upon one's works, whether they are the fulfillment of God's will, whether they are in fulfillment of God's will and approved by his judge and king. That's Watchtower, 1947. Jesus Christ identified a first requirement when he said in prayer, this means everlasting life. They're taking in knowledge of you. Many have found the second requirement more difficult. It is to obey God's laws. A third requirement is to be associated with God's channel, his organization. You know what that is. To receive everlasting life in the earthly paradise, we must identify that organization and serve God as part of it. So you've got to be part of the watchtower, as we said. The fourth requirement requires that prospective subjects of his kingdom support his government by loyally advocating his kingdom rule to others at his preaching door to door. That's 1983. There's, there's more, but those are that's enough. I think gives you a general general idea. Um, okay, just some. Uh, what time are we at here? <clears throat> break time. You answered that pretty quick. Who was watching there? You were looking at your watch, Claudio. You were, weren't you? Okay, Um, let's take a break, and then I want to talk just about some distinctive characteristics of the Kingdom Hall, and then I want to get into some other stuff hopefully before we leave tonight, okay? All right. Thanks, by the way, to whoever's bringing all these great snacks, and to Ruth for making our coffee. Who bought who brought the uh, brownies all right who brought the I think it was cheesecake but I was nervous about I was nervous about having any because I won't take too long who brought the cookies did you bring the cookies, no, I brought the cookies. you did okay well thank you everybody okay. keep up the good work <laughs> all right so I, I want to review some What's, what are called distinctive or interesting beliefs? Some of these don't really matter from a doctrinal perspective, but they are interesting. So, for whatever reason, they like to pick a fight over the cross. They say the cross was a single stake instead of a cross, and that the cross is from pagan origin, so he was crucified on a stake, not a, like a pole, not a cross. Participation in war and military service of any kind is strictly forbidden. In fact, any form of patriotism like saluting the flag, voting, involvement in politics is wrong. Such actions demonstrate an allegiance to men rather than God. Birthday parties, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, holidays out the door. Not allowed to celebrate that. They're unbiblical. Uh, It's a lot cheaper at Christmas for them than it is for most of us. Mike kind of likes that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I was in the gospel hall growing up, there was no, we didn't celebrate that. I don't remember if we celebrated birthdays, to be honest, but the first time I think I had a Christmas tree in my house, I was probably, I don't know, like nine or ten. It just wasn't allowed. I didn't even really know it existed, to be honest, for whatever reason. Blood transfusions for adults and children are strictly prohibited. So they tie this into, like, the idea in the Old Testament of not eating the blood of animals, and somehow there's, I think it's quite a logical leap into you can't have blood transfusions either. So sometimes you hear stories of children that need blood transfusions that are dying, and there's debates in courts because the parents are like, no, they're not allowed to have it, and, you know, we'll... How can you say that for a kid? And there's, all, there's sometimes you hear those kinds of stories, and that, that's where it comes from. It's their beliefs. They believe that Christ returned visibly in 1914 and began setting up his kingdom. Part of the sign of his presence was the start of World War One. And there's been a number of different prophecies as to when he's going to come back, and they keep pushing the date forward because it keeps changing. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses consider themselves God's prophets on earth. They've made numerous false prophecies, most of them dealing with the end of the world, which is kind of typical. everyone's all gets all hung up on the end of the world. so those are just some like distinctive characteristics or qualities among kingdom haulers that you know they might bring up on occasion, yep, um, Ererie, okay, yeah. I remember asking that question. So this is like 20 years old now. I might be a little foggy on it. But best as I understand and recollect, they believed at one point in time that there would be 144,000 elect that would have like a special place within the kingdom of God. When that number was surpassed, because they grew beyond that, then it became something different. So it became, let's say we were a kingdom hall. There may be a person among us, let's say Gary, that has some sort of a mystical encounter with God, or some sort of a spiritual experience, and he believes, he comes to believe that he's one of 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses throughout time, from all over the world, that will have some sort of a special status or place in the kingdom of God. So it's it's um, a self-determined status. And I remember when I asked, well, does that like affect that person's standing in the church? They said, not really, but we would be aware. I said, well, do you have anybody like that? And as I recall, they were saying there was one older woman at the time in the Windsor area who was one of the 144,000. I don't know if there was more or not. So it would just be the odd person here and there. And when that number reaches its fullness, then the kingdom of God will come in all of its fullness. So... The point being is that there's, that's 20 years ago now, that was the doctrine then, I'm assuming it's the same now, but that's changed from some of their original understandings. Of course, we understand that to be probably 12,000 from the 12 tribes. It's either a figurative number of perfection or a limited number of those that will come to Christ during the tribulation period.
2: You know, what, what gets you to be one of the 144,000? And they said, well, you know, if we work really hard, if we you know, follow all the watchtower rules, basically, and not that they have a chance of being one of these people.
0: Okay. Yeah. So
2: it's all workspace. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and sort of a, a position of status, or maybe like a, you know, it's almost like getting to having to be a super Christian, like having a bigger house than everyone else, something like that yeah interesting okay
2: question for you Aaron yeah Um, so the the oldest witnesses obviously they they have some beliefs here that are sort of what's called extra biblical right and so are they coming uh, are those beliefs then like um, given down by the by the council let's say almost like
0: Yeah, so doctrine, the doctrines of the Kingdom Hall are in a sense decided upon and come down from the Watchtower Society. So the Watchtower Society in Brooklyn, New York is kind of like the Vatican. Like that's the place where the organization determines what's right, what's wrong, what needs to be updated, and and disseminates that out through their churches around the world. Well, some of them are extrapolations. So you say to somebody, you can't have a blood transfusion. Well, where's that tied to? Well, in Leviticus it says you're not to eat the blood of an animal. Okay. What's the link? So they would create an interpretive link between the two. Or, I mean, there's the number 144,000 is mentioned in Revelation. So then it's, what does it mean? So then they would come up with a, an interpretation of that. Or, you can't go to war. Well, Jesus says, don't slap people on... Or, if someone uh, slaps you in the cheek, give them your other cheek. Okay, well, that means we, we, we can never participate in violent acts. Well, if you want to hear more about that, I'm going to be talking about that at I Declare. And trying to reconcile, why do we have a violent Yahweh in the Old Testament and a peaceful Jesus in the New Testament? And, But the point being is that they would look at a passage and... I guess pull it out to the exclusion of all others, not look at the broader counsel of Scripture and formulate a doctrine on it, and be quite specific. Now, some Christians in our church might say we're quite we're too specific in terms of our expectations and beliefs on each other, I suppose. But in the Kingdom Hall, there's a much greater emphasis on uniformity of belief and conscience even than there would be in a church like ours, which is on the conservative end of the spectrum, theologically. So they would, they would have a tie-in. Obviously, I would think, in my opinion, that the idea of there being one organization on, work, on earth that represents God's will, that's what I call a doctrine of convenience. Oh, isn't that convenient? And there's not really a biblical support for that, other than if you see Russell as God's prophet, as having if you if you start with that assumption he's the prophet the guys that come after him are god's special representatives then you create a culture within which this guy tells everybody what to do and determines that which is true and he's venerated like,
2: like the, this whole idea about uh, jesus being uh, michael mm.
0: It will just be like a speculation. It would be reading between the lines. It would be you know, taking one verse here and try to blend it with another verse. I mean, it's, it's bad systematic theology. But they would try in their arguments to somehow tie it to biblical texts. But here, here's the reality, folks. You can, the Bible's a, a book. A, a, it's an ancient book. It's written in various languages. Certain genres of scripture are complicated you got a lot of flexibility to create your own religion out of the bible so one of the interpretive principles that that i think are important to understand is you start with the plain you start with the obvious you start with the unobscure and those become your foundation and the and and those are fundamental doctrines and then you got sort of another tier where they're close to fundamental, but there's maybe some room for divergency and then up from there, you have stuff that really doesn't matter at all, but you might have an opinion on it. Did Adam have a belly button? who cares you know and if he did, was there lint in it? You know so you know these are the kinds of things that uh I, I, when i th- I guess not because he was wearing fur but um you know, these are the kinds of things. If you if you think about the the Bible, not that I do this all the time, but I tend to think of the Bible. Okay, what are the fundamentals? What makes a person a Christian, and what excludes a person by definition from being a Christian? And then you got issues of fellowship. Like, okay, I might say this person's a Christian, but it's kind of hard to do church with them, to fellowship with them, because they they have such a different view on worship or on how a church should be organized. So while I give them a tip of the hat. I honor them. It's, it's kind of hard to have close-knit intimacy with them. And then, you know, it goes up from there. You have uh, issues that are that are um, less and less important. So what, what often happens in a cult is they'll take something that's obscure that none of the rest of us really care about and bring it to the center. And, by the way, you have to be careful about this in preaching. Um... I'm always a little bit I'm always a little bit cautious around people who are finding all these things in the Bible that no one else has found. Like it's kind of exciting for them, I guess, but they're finding stuff there that I don't think anyone else is even thinking about that. And they like focus on it. I think it was in um I think it's in Esther where the king issues a decree, and it says the king's issued, and the, the king issues a decree, or a decree's is issued in the king's name. I think it's the first chapter. I had a guy once try to argue that that's why the King James version is a superior Bible because it's issued in the king's name, and if, the, if, if a decree is issued in the king's name, it's a more authoritative. I'm thinking, dude, I don't even, I don't see the tie in there at all. But this was like a big deal for him. So most movements like this would say something along these lines that Jesus taught and preached and he had a followership but over the course of time that was lost. There may or may not have been a remnant that existed. Maybe true Christianity completely died out prior to Russell. Maybe there was a remnant existing someplace in the world. And Russell's part of what's called a restoration movement which was quite popular in the 1800s. Different people saying We're trying to restore original Christianity to its original flavor. The reason why I think historically we see a lot of that in North America because that was the pioneering mindset. This is an opportunity to start afresh. We can break from the Anglican Church, the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, the Mennonite Church of Holland, whatever it might be, or of, of Germany, right? So you got all these sort of new thinkers, people who believe in democracy and freedom, and it's their opportunity to look at the Bible through fresh eyes. They're studying the Bible, they don't care what you think or what you think, they're not accountable to anybody, they're not trained, they're not connected with seminaries, and it's like the restorationist, purest mindset. And so they kind of establish or reestablish true biblical Christianity. I don't know what Russell would have thought in terms of the generation that immediately came before him, or immediately came before him. He may have thought that there was always a remnant, or he may have thought that, Literally, biblical Christianity was non-existent, and it was his job to resurrect it. I'm not sure. But the same question can be applied to the Protestants. You know, when we broke from the Catholic Church, were there no born-again Christians on planet Earth for a few centuries, or were there a few? It's an interesting question. Was there a remnant somewhere within the church or had we actually reached a point in time where, pfft, I think there was some bad Catholics, yeah, who were born again, maybe, yeah. You learned that from me, didn't you? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, I would tend to think there's always been a remnant, cause, and I would just base it on Jesus' statement, the gates of hell won't prevail against his church. So... You know, maybe that just means that the end game, the gates of hell won't prevail, but it also could mean that there will always be a remnant someplace, somehow, of born-again, what we would call born-again believers. Even if there's a lot of apostasy mixed into that, right? All right. So what I want to do now is get back into your notes on page 52. Now, <clears throat> without downplaying the idea that the Bible is self-validating in the sense that when a person encounters God, they can actually be saved just from reading the Bible. And that, in a sense, validates the fact the Bible is the word of God. Without neglecting that spiritual dimension, I want to provide you with some arguments or maybe better said some proofs or some background to why we can look at the Bible. So now we're talking about the reliability of Scripture and believe that the Bible documents are reliable and accurate historical records. So what we're not saying here is that we we got proof now that it's the Word of God. But before we get to discussions about the Word of God, we'd want to at least agree or share with people that the, the book that we call the Bible, it's not some book that's been monkeyed around with and changed and twisted and rewritten and thrown out and pulled out of the recycling bin. No, there's actually some historical continuity to it. And it's a book that, from, just from a, from a historical perspective, can in fact be trusted as an accurate reflection of the original texts. So here's, here's some things. First of all, some questions. Why do why do we even need to talk about this? Well, because you're going to hear people that say, I found errors in the Bible. And some of those are apparent errors. In other words, they'll look at one truth, look at another truth, and say, I can't reconcile the the two. Like the one I gave earlier. God's violent in the Old Testament. Jesus is peaceful in the New. There you go. The Bible can't possibly be true. So you're gonna find stuff like that. You're gonna find archaeological attacks. So the classic one, what, 150 years ago was, well, we haven't, we've never heard of Hittites in modern day archaeology. They're mentioned in the Bible, so the Bible's not true. Then they start digging up Hittite found, Hittite civilizations. But those are the kind of things that are often levied against the Bible. Uh, Another reason to study study the Bible's historicity is it can either strengthen or weaken our faith. I don't know about you, but if I find that the Bible's full of errors and problems, it's going to put me on a little shaky footings in terms of preaching and reading and understanding and drawing truth from it and all that kind of stuff. And then we have a, a doctrine that I think most of us hold dear, and that is inerrancy, which means that the Bible is without error. The inerrancy of Scripture is at stake if the Bible is in error. So here's some support for the uh, the uh answer to the question, yes. Are the Bible documents reliable? Yes. And I wouldn't suggest to you that any one of these arguments by itself is necessarily going to convert someone to Christianity, but it is evidence that does point us in the direction of affirming the historical accuracy of the Bible. So we have, for instance, just the the method of biblical transmission. So look at the Old Testament. We know that scribes were trained to be super accurate, not entirely without error, but super accurate in their transmission of biblical text and other texts as well. There were other texts they spent time translating. So we know that they counted the numbers of the letters and the books they were copying so they um, you can compare uh a uh you know manuscript from 1000 AD to a manuscript from 2004 or whatever your date might be and you have accuracy because they're recording the numbers i think in in my course on biblical origins those of you that were there we talked about the fact that in the back of uh let's say the book of genesis it records the 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 letters The middle letter, they would count from the first letter to the middle of the book. The back letter from the middle of the book, they had to arrive at the same letter or they basically the manuscript's junk. So they they put practices like this in, in order to make sure that it was accurately transmitted. And then we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. The story behind the Dead Sea Scrolls is there's a place in Israel called Qumran, and it's close to the Dead Sea. That's why we call it the Dead Sea. When I say close, I mean like you can see the Dead Sea from Qumran. It's not right on the shore. <coughs> this, let's say this is Israel. So this is the Mediterranean. And in the north of Israel, you today, uh, we would have the Sea of Galilee. Then you have the Jordan River. And then you have this elongated body of water known as the Dead Sea. So this is the Dead Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee, just to orient you. This is Jerusalem. This is the Negev Desert. Okay, so Beersheba's down here. Jerusalem, Tiberias, Capernaum. This is the land, the land of the Gerasenes where Jesus cast out the demoniac. This is now modern-day Jordan. This is modern-day Israel. This is Tel Aviv, okay? So when you... Come down to Jer- Jerusalem, or up to Jerusalem. You then travel down a road, probably 40 minutes maybe, and you're now within visual proximity to the Dead Sea. And just off to the north, I guess that would be northwest corner of the Dead Sea, is an ancient community, or was an ancient community called Qumran. And the Qumran community was composed mostly of Essenes, like a religious sect of zealots that were very concerned about not being influenced by Rome and had formed this sort of getaway community where they wanted to practice what they perceived to be the purest form of Judaism. There was another famous group down the road here at Masada who were wiped out by the Romans. The famous story of them building the siege ramp and they come in and everybody but three or four had committed suicides. So they weren't taken captive. <clears throat> so at Qumran, if you're standing in the ruins of Qumran and you look out over the edge of one of the little walls, there's a series of cliffs. And in these cliffs, there's caves. And then you look up the mountain and there's more caves. And what this community did is they hid a lot of their scrolls Biblical scrolls and extra-biblical scrolls, meaning Old Testament scrolls. They weren't New Testament people. They were Jews. In these containers, in these caves. And the caves are very difficult to reach by foot. Like They're like the side of a mountain. You have to maybe lower a guy down on a rope to get into it. So who's got the time to be out in the desert lowering your friends down on ropes just for the heck of it, right? So what happened was this community at some point, we don't exactly know how, was wiped out or went extinct, or something dramatic happened, they were gone. And in this dry, arid place, low moisture content, not a lot of rain, not a lot of animal life, these scrolls sat through the 100s, the 200s, the 300s, the 400s, the 500s, right into the 1900s. And the account goes that in and around 1947, a young shepherd boy, who is still alive as far as I know, was throwing stones, and he heard something crack. So the short story is he goes in, he sees these scrolls. Maybe he tells his buddies, his dad or whatever. They start hiking him out of there, realize they're ancient, but they're not archaeologists. They're not schooled, educated people. So they start selling them in the markets of Jerusalem, and antique buyers are buying them, and they're you know starting to pop up here and there. So over the course of a few years, this is going on. And now they're realizing, because... Antique dealers are wandering through the markets and like, whoa, what? Where'd you get this? That these things are valuable. So the government starts spending hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to buy these scrolls back. They're like scattered all over the world now. They're trying to get in, trying to find out from these Bedouins where the rest of the scrolls are. And and over the course of about four or five, six years. This, this, this ongoing discovery takes place of where these caves are and where these scrolls are and they find a whole bunch of more caves up in the mountains within proximity and haul them all out and it's like the, kind of like the greatest literary archaeological find ever. Now, within that collection of, uh, scrolls, which I, th- I think they actually probably were still digging them up 10, 15, 20 years later, or pulling them out I should say, were a lot of biblical scrolls so for instance the scroll of the isaiah scroll and even some scrolls that were written in a form of hebrew alphabet that predate the one that we have which is called the aramaic square so what happened is these uh, these scrolls have now been like pictures have been taken of them they've been cataloged there's some in british columbia i think there's some in indiana or ohio there's some in munich you know they're scattered around the world's major universities And they're being studied and translated. They haven't always been translated yet. But some of the critical ones, like the Isaiah scroll, the interesting thing was, is fast forward to about 1000 AD. Okay, Unlike the Greek New Testament, where we had manuscripts back to within a century or two of Christ, we didn't have a Hebrew Bible much past 1000 AD. So that, that's only like halfway between us and jesus right so the question is what happened in that thousand years and what happened was the discovery of like the isaiah scrolls and whatnot took us back and suddenly gave us manuscripts you know 300 plus years before christ just like that so now we have manuscripts that not only are twice as old as what we have but are thrown back into uh, a period well prior to christ and we're looking at them and saying, "Same, it's the same." So the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was uh, an affirmatory discovery of the accurate transmission of Scripture through centuries of time, and have you know had a had a huge uh, impact on uh, the uh, the world as we know it. Now, within the Qumran community, there were some. Funky doctrines. And so on rare occasion where there's a note or a modification in a biblical text, it's because of their doctrinal persuasions. So where there was alterations, shall we say, or notations or commentaries on a text, because there were also commentaries on a text that differ from our understanding, it's easy to sort through them because when one studies what these people believe, kind of sets you off to why this particular matter would have been important to them and they maybe didn't like it or wanted to make an amendment now another thing we want to talk about is the LXx now the the LXx is an abbreviation it's the it's the Roman numerals you'd recognize that they're 70 right and the LXx is a Greek okay a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that predates Jesus Christ coming to the world So, written in and around the 3rd century, we have a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that Jesus himself quoted from. So, when Jesus is quoting Old Testament, best as we can tell, most of the time he's actually quoting from a translation of the Hebrew, notably the Septuagint, probably for practical purposes because it was more of a lingua franca. Whereas the Hebrew language would have been limited to Hebrew speakers. the um, Even the Hebrews were so Hellenized or influenced by the Greeks that reading from a Greek translation would have made more sense to them. So the cool thing about the, the LXX or the Septuagint is we still have these. I have one or two in my library. And uh, what they do for us is they take Hebrew, which is, in some ways Hebrew is more complex than Greek, but it's not as active. Accurate in terms of like verbal tenses, and some of the things that we would look for in the English language. Um, When you have a language that is very distinct from English, like Hebrew, and then you have someone twenty three hundred years ago translating it into Greek, which is much more like English in terms of its structure and grammatical concepts, it it's a huge asset in terms of understanding how the ancients understood Hebrew in Greek. So the the Septuagint is a a very helpful study tool when, let's say we're looking at a Hebrew text, and it's a little bit obscure in terms of, let's just say, the the tense of a verb. Then we can look at the Septuagint, which is more accurate, which Jesus quoted from and said, oh, okay, so now we can understand how they understood the tense of that verb. Through the eyes of the Greek language, which is different than Hebrew, more like English in that respect. So um, these are just some things to think about that I think give us a, a sense of greater assurance in the historicity, just the historicity of the Old Testament. And then when it comes to the New Testament, the uh, there's these these uh, these stats, by the way, are always being updated. Because more and more stuff's being found. But one one famous New Testament scholar said that not more than one one thousandth of the New Testament has variant spellings and words. In other words, if you're just to give some uh, some maybe English parallels, you know that there's two ways to spell the word there. Right? In fact, when you say it, you also might, if it's out of context, think that you're saying they are like they apostrophe r e. But T-H-E-R-E, and T-H what? I-E-R? E-R-I? I before E except after C. Okay. So if you look at those words, you know as an English speaker that you use them differently. But they sound the same, don't they? So let's say that you are employed at the Alexandrian School of manuscripts, and you're all scribes, and I'm, I have the copy, and you got your papers in front of you. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to read it to you very slowly, and you start writing, and each of you is making a copy, because we don't have photocopiers, and I'm reading, and I say there. Well, one of you might, I guess, write down T-H what? (laughs) E-I-R. I'm going to tell you something about myself. If I see it on paper, I'll spell it right. I can't spell on a board. I don't know why it is. I can't spell on a board, so I'm not used to it. <laughs> so anyway, one of you might hear that. One of you might hear T-H-E-R-E. One of you might hear T-H-E-Y-R-E. So the point being is that obviously it doesn't affect doctrine, but it's, a, it's an error. And let's say we sell off everybody's, everybody's uh, manuscript, but we keep mine. And I've spelt deity wrong. And you know, I lose my job when someone else has my job and they're now reading it to you, and you say, How do you spell that? and he misspelled. You know, the point being is that those errors could be transmitted because of problems with oral communication or that human error. So it is true that within New Testament manuscripts there are errors as simple as that, and there are I don't know if you would call it an error, but for instance, if you look at um, Ephesians, there's an addition. So Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, notice in the first verse it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Okay, well, in Ephesus wasn't in the first letter. So the oldest manuscripts don't have in Ephesus, but all of the ones, let's say 50, 60, 70 years after, have in Ephesus. Why? Why do they just throw that in there? Obviously it doesn't change doctrine, but why is it in there? Because what would happen is these letters were so important, they were apostolic in nature, they'd begin to be circulated. So you'd pass the letters around. And at some point, someone put in Ephesus in there because as it was being passed around, they wanted to make a note as to where that originally came from so that future generations would know that originally, even though it may be often Laodicea or Smyrna, this was a a letter to the church in Ephesus. So that's added. So there are situations like that in the text, and there's a whole science called textual criticism where scholars who are interested in that kind of thing uh, which can be quite detailed and tedious, can sort through those kinds of errors or modifications and come up with reasonable explanations as to why. So um, you need to be aware of that, but that shouldn't like rock your faith because we're, it, that's entirely different than someone saying like they rewrote sections or changed doctrine or deleted stuff. It's not not that kind of thing. It's more, it's a human book written by human people and there's typos and stuff like that that end up in the New Testament manuscripts. So it's interesting because uh, I remember being taught that if you look at the Mediterranean, there was three schools. I think one in the north, one of the north of the Mediterranean, one in northern Africa and one in like Area of Palestine, and one of the best one of the best schools was called the Alexandrian school, which would have come out of like Egypt, right? And if you look at their all the manuscripts that they produced, you'll see common errors. And if you compare that to like the Western or the uh, Caesarean texts, you'll see common errors. So they, they actually trace them back and they're able to uh, differentiate between the errors, because the errors are transmitted, they're almost like, um, uh, you know, like a a publisher, each publisher has sort of a certain way of maybe printing a book or something like that. And if they print it with a certain kind of ink, and the ink fades after six years, and every book they ever write fades after six years, then you find a book that's faded. After six years, you don't even have to look at the publisher. You know where it came from. It's roughly that kind of thing. So scholars engage in the process of trying to sort through some of that stuff based upon the schools and how they were transmitted and so forth. Now, another question is, why the 66 books of the canon? So the canon, generally when we're talking about like a canon that shoots things, I think we throw in a couple ends. But now I'm feeling a little shaky tonight with my spelling abilities, but I'm pretty sure that's true. I usually brag about my spelling abilities, but I've been humbled tonight. So um, why the 66 books is the canon? We talk about biblical canon. We're talking about a rule. So we're talking about, we call this the canon of Scripture and that it's the rule of Scripture. And at some point, we all know that these books were bound up. Like there were decisions that needed to be made. What goes in here and what doesn't go in here? So there's often a lot of confusion about what that process looked like. And you'll often hear skeptics say, well, a bunch of guys with pointy hats just got together and said, this is in, this is out, this is in, this is out. And that's how they, how do you know it's true? That's not what happened. Jesus, the, when when church the early church fathers, that is those that were sort of patriarchs and notables in the church, formed different synods and councils to, finally closed the Bible up into two covers, so to speak. There was a process that they went through. And best as we can tell, they understood the process as a process of affirmation, not a process so much of selection. This is very different. So they they felt that their uh, purpose was to affirm that which had already been affirmed by Christ and the apostles as Scripture, not select what's in and what's out. So to make sure that there was accuracy, there's a number of discussions that had to be had. So when it came to the Old Testament, they looked for things like, well, did Jesus accept it? Well, how do they know that Jesus accepted it? Well, did he preach from it? Did he quote from it authoritatively? Did he say things like, you know, thus saith the Lord? And then quote from Isaiah, for instance. And so if Jesus quoted from it, then, you know, I think you're on pretty firm grounds if you believe in the deity of Christ that you should probably throw that one in, right? And... Then there was uh just as an aside, the apocryphal books were not sort of the books that everyone looked at like this. Ooh, it's from the devil. We don't want to get near the apocrypha. That's not that's not as best as we can tell the mindset that Christian people had about the Apocrypha, which you'll find today in the Catholic Bible. The Apocrypha rather are is a reference to a series of books that were written probably after Malachi and up to the time of Christ. Over a period of roughly 400 years, they recorded uh, the life and struggles and times and spiritual perspectives of the Jews. So, for instance, there's um, books that record the, the Maccabean revolt and, and the different difficulties they had. There's a, a story about a guy named uh, Tobit, I believe it was, who went to, I think it was Babylon, and uh, you know had all sorts of experiences. There's a story, I think it's him or another, that he's laying by the wall one night and a sparrow poops in his eyes and he loses his sight and somehow he tries to get his sight restored there's some kind of interesting stuff in there and these are the kinds of of accounts and stories that may or may not have happened that are recorded in the apocryphal book so when the church saw the apocryphal books they viewed them as good history um uh insight into the, the, the mindset and the psyche of people during that period of time and valuable books. And some of them they would have viewed as being sort of maybe not scriptural, but very very good sort of devotional reading. Kinda of like we have books today that may The Pilgrim's Progress. It's been around for how long? Like generations and it's still referenced. We don't, we're not going to throw it in the Bible as the 67th book. But it's sort of so powerful and meaningful that it's been kept and passed on. It doesn't really go out of print. So it was kind of like that. Now, so these books were sometimes r- put into the pages of the Bible in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but were never affirmed as Scripture. They were kind of like like a study Bible. you got notes at the bottom, but you're not saying it's Bible, but it's helpful, it's there. Well, what if we... What if we kept the study notes for so long, never changed, and the 1,500 years later, the church is like, you know what? These are actually Bible now. Well, that's kind of what happened because at the Council of Trent, which was basically a reaction to the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic bishops voted to up the status of the Apocrypha to Scripture. And again, we're talking like fifteen to 1,800 years. It had never been affirmed as such. And it was not accepted as holy by the ancient saints. By Christ, never quoted from it. It isn't even interesting. It doesn't even claim to be the word of God. And the early church fathers viewed it as helpful, helpful, but not canon. Now, when it comes to the New Testament, they obviously looked for claims like the, Are these books claiming to be the word of God? Just because it claims to be the word of God doesn't mean it's the word of God. But if it's claiming to be the word of God, you got to at least consider the claim. So we have some scripture references there of books that claim to be inspired. Um, canonicity is not historically well explained. In other words, we don't have like a detailed list of minutes and motions and all that as to how they totally did it. But it's clear that they were accepted as canon and scripture. Jews accepted the Old Testament. The New Testament there had to be a tie-in to apostolic authority because Jesus gave the apostles authority to bind the church to truth, to kind of become like revelators. So apostles aren't just really good preachers. They're like speaking on behalf of God. So there had to be they had to be written by an apostle or someone who had a close affiliation with the apostles, like Luke, for instance. Um, the, the, new, the early church had to have viewed them in some way, shape, or form as canon. And so ultimately what happened is, uh, uh, through a series of events in and around 397 at the Council of Carthage, things were pretty much uh, all closed up. The the debate sort of was over, you might say. So three criteria, just to summarize. um, Could the author be shown to be an apostle appointed by Christ? Um, Mark and Luke were the only exceptions as they were close associates. Did the church see them authoritatively? And that should be three. Were they sound doctrinally? And ultimately the Holy Spirit's words say, my words will not pass away. So they had to be available, and not have gone extinct. One interesting point is that it would appear if you read Paul's writings to Cor- Corinth that he actually wrote other letters to Corinth. Some have suggested up to five based upon the timeline and what he's saying here, as opposed to here, that he may have written five, maybe he wrote 75, I don't know, uh, letters to Corinth. And yet, interestingly, we only have two letters to the Corinthian church. So, I guess we could say that not all that the apostles wrote was ultimately bound up in Scripture, but that which was considered important for doctrine, and uh, correction and rebuke, growth and righteousness ended up being retained by the church. The very fact that they retained it, copied it, passed it around, says something about how they viewed the importance of that letter, right? So if I have a letter written to me by you, I might keep it for 15 minutes, I might keep it for 15 years, but it has to be pretty special or something important for me to start passing it around to other churches and for it still to be in existence 2,000 years later. So the the New Testament churches had a habit of circulating the letters that were given to them by Paul and the other apostles. We know that sometimes in some of the letters, Paul basically says, when you're done with it, pass it on. So the circulation, the the preservation of it, is also, in a sense, an argument for uh, the preservation of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. Were you gonna make a comment, Jim?
2: I guess I just I thought that uh, maybe this person who said they they uh, they had all Paul's letters and they just decided to put two in to the Corinthians, or did he? They they only had two left over.
0: No, like. There's a reference in the Corinthians, I think it is, to the painful letter. Well, I don't know what that is. It's not, it doesn't seem to be... Well, let's just say, for instance, that Paul wrote 15 letters to Corinth. We'll just pull the number out of the air. Well, two of those letters we have, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, they could actually be 7th and 10th Corinthians, if you wanted to give them all numbers. But perhaps some of those letters contained things they already knew, or they were personal. Maybe they were like, hey, I want to let you know I'm coming on May the 5th. You know, have a bed ready for me. Like they weren't really profitable for correction, rebuke, training, and righteousness, so they were discarded. Maybe it was a situation that was so specific to an event that took place in Corinth that there was no real need once that event had been resolved to preserve it and pass it out to other churches. So even while the New Testament letters are occasional documents, they're written to a specific audience at a specific time for a specific occasion, there's enough doctrine and content in there that they're preserved and actually passed on to other churches to learn from, even though the occasion then is different, the people are different, the time changes. So if you have a letter where the, the content... the is so specific to the occasion, the people, and the event, that it's not profitable for others. One would assume it's not going to be passed on and recorded and re-recorded and transmitted. But the letters that were would have been passed on. So that's probably what was taking place. So Paul could have wrote numerous letters to Ephesus or numerous letters to Thessalonica or numerous letters to an individual. And it was the ones that the church felt contained material that other people needed to see, Uh, that were transmitted to other churches, copied, passed on by courier, kept for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, preached from, referred to, and so forth and so on. We also have lots of ancient sermons. They're called lectionaries. And within those lectionaries, just like in my sermons, there's quotations from Scripture. So in a sense, when we uncover lectionaries, we see what the Scriptures looked like. They were reading from or preaching from then and those those excerpts are the same as the New Testament and Old Testament that we have in our possession that are complete. Joe? Even though it's, such a, it's, it's a significantly newer book so you would think that there would actually be better arguments and more reasons to accept it than a book that's parts of our, our Bible predate the Quran by what 16, 1700 years? That's a long time especially in a day and age with no photocopiers or printing presses so uh, I guess we're out of time but uh, I hope this has been profitable tonight Last next week's our final night So uh, we look forward to seeing you then.